Hello and welcome to this celebration of movie excellence in 2024. I'm Alex Zane and in Countdown to the BAFTAs we speak to the producers behind those films nominated for Best Film at the EE BAFTA Film Awards 2024. This time, it's Poor Things. May I have a moment of value time, dear God? Of course, Bella. I wanted to tell you big news. Bella's dizzy with excitement. In this wide-ranging interview, we discuss how they got from the creative spark that started it all to the challenges faced in bringing it to the screen. And a quick warning, we will be talking about the story. This is Countdown to the BAFTAs. Poor Things tells the story of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone, a young woman brought back to life with the brain of an infant by the unorthodox Dr. Godwin Baxter, played by Willem Dafoe. Hungry for the world, Bella embarks on a cross-continent adventure with Mark Ruffalo's debauched lawyer, Duncan Wedderburn. You're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. One that I've been with many. Mrs. Prim said you were wolf with scent of hundred women on you. She undersells it. And over time, evolves to become steadfast in her stand for equality and liberation. Hi, I'm Andrew Lowe, producer on Poor Things. Hi, my name is Ed Guiney. I'm a producer on Poor Things. Ed, Andrew, absolutely fantastic to have you here to talk about Poor Things. Let me start by saying congratulations. How does it feel to have been recognised and have Poor Things recognised by the BAFTA members? Yeah, no, listen, it's it's uh, been amazing, Alex. We're so chuffed and, you know, we're so proud of this film. Uh, we've been very fortunate to work with Yorgos now for a long time. This is the fourth of five films we've done with him. And over those films, we've sort of pulled together a band of trusted creatives, all of whose work has has been recognized, thankfully, by BAFTA and rightly so, we feel, because they've just done an incredible job. So, yeah, no, we're really thrilled by, by all the nominations. And as you just said, you've worked with director Yorgos Lanthimos since The Lobster, I believe. So tell me, in that relationship over these many years, when were you first introduced to the words poor things? What was the circumstance and what was your reaction to this idea at that point? I think it was after we had shot The Lobster, 2014, 2015, and he was talking about new projects and other things. And he mentioned this book, Poor Things, and that he'd already been to see Alistair Gray up in Glasgow. And, you know, he talked a little bit about it. It sounded incredibly ambitious, but really exciting and unusual and bold. And, you know, when we read it and absolutely fell in love with the novel, it's an incredible novel and so full of ideas. You know, as those people who've seen it will know, it's 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 ambitious. It's quite big, and it's a kind of it's a kind of very bold idea in a sense. But it's it's a bit like you know Bella Baxter in the movie. Through a series of baby steps, we kind of self-actualized, and by making a bunch of movies with with Yorgos, and then I suppose really the key thing was making the favorite, which became a kind of a critical hit and awards hit, and and that gave us collectively and Yorgos in particular the right to contemplate making poor things, and 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 Emma Stone's. Uh, involvement in poor things is absolutely key to kind of making the argument for it because it, it's a it's an ambitious film with an ambitious budget. So having her kind of front and center, both as the star but also as a producer, that was a key thing. And it's been a journey, but a, a really good one. And from something that felt kind of like an incredible thing to try to pull off, it's great that we have 
been allowed to have a go at it. To touch on one of the points you just made, just how important was the success of The Favourite? For example, had The Favourite not been such a successful film in every respect, would we be here talking about poor things right now or did one very much lead on to the other? I think probably the answer is yes to both. In other words, we, you know, as we always did, we would have figured out a way of getting this film made. I think we didn't have the success of The Favourite, but it probably wouldn't be the version of poor things that we've been able to bring to the world because we would, would have had more limited resources. And one of the things we've been blessed with is a very supportive collaboration with Film 4 across all of Jorgos' English language films. So they helped us develop Poor Things in the first instance. But I guess one of the advantages of The Favourite was developing a really strong, fruitful relationship with Searchlight. And making films is tough. And, and so, you know, when you find fellow travellers who are like-minded and, you know, in, in the heat of battle, you forge supportive relationships, then then that, that really helped. So, so there was a very easy conversation to be had with Film 4 and Searchlight once we came out the other side of favourite and that Poor Things was the thing he wanted to do next. And it was outside of the typical boundaries of Searchlight and Film 4's budgets, arguably, but everyone saw the opportunity and they dug deep and we, you know, worked hard to try and figure out how to make it. Um, for a price. And um, so, yeah, so I, I you know, th that was the best version of it. And we're so blessed that that's what happened. But there, there was another version, I'm sure, too. We would have figured it out. I guess uh, the dream of any producer is to have a star who is invested in the, the project that you are making together. And I hope I'm right in saying this. Um, Yorgos didn't even pitch it to Emma shortly after the favourite he merely mentioned in passing to Emma Stone the movie he was making and that little tidbit of information she was she was hooked and from the get-go she fell in love with the idea of making this project yeah definitely I mean I think they were just chit-chatting really and um, they'd had a great time working with each other on on the favorite and she just yeah she jumped on it and i think it i think it was probably a couple of years after that before she actually read the script so i don't know exactly when she read the script but but she was super curious and kind of all in from the start and that's listen it's such a valuable commodity that to have that kind of input and for us to know that you know emma wanted to play this part yeah, she's one of you know the great actors in the world and and to have that kind of commitment just really powered us on you know is incredibly important as pr producers of this movie we've already touched on on the sheer scale uh, of the undertaking that poor things was for you even with having uh, emma on board and even with your long relationship with yorgos do you have to at some stage when you're looking at the lay of the land the amount of time energy and money that is going to be invested in this project do you have to take a a step back and in an almost dispassionate way go Look, is is this a go project? Can we feasibly make this film? Yeah, I mean, I think you know there was a huge amount of um, research and prep went into figuring out how to make this film. We were also impacted by the advent of COVID, which was both ironically positive and negative. So Kasia Malipan, who was our our co-producer and is a line producer we'd worked with in the past, so we brought her on to help us figure out how to physically make the film. And she worked very closely with Paula Heffernan, our head of production, and they did a very detailed, rigorous research exercise. You know, one of the, the first things Jorgos had said to us when we first started talking about the film is that he wanted to shoot in the style of a 1940s Hollywood movie. So in other words, everything on sound stages. So that was the rule we set ourselves and we, we then figured out, well, how, how feasible is that realistically? One challenge was obviously budget. Another challenge was just availability, actually finding 
sound stages that were available. And then, as I say, we, you know, COVID hit. So, so one of the, we sort of digressed a little bit and, and we just, we focused then on setting up an art department, which film four very graciously got behind and supported. And it's quite an unusual thing to do, but it really, really stood to us. And, and we had an art department team working for the guts of two to three months in London, just coming up with all the sort of concepts for the film. And it was a combination of Shona Heath and James Price, our two brilliant production designers and their teams, just coming up with all these ideas for the animals you see in the film, the worlds that, you know, that everything really. That just meant by the time, you know, COVID lifted again in, enough to allow us to kind of travel, we were quite clear about what we were looking for. And we, and we found in Hungary, the kind of perfect combination of stage space, good crews, particularly around construction, because it was just a massive amount of construction on this film. I, I want to go back to this, uh, this art department that, uh, you were able to set up to uh, begin the design work on the movie. And um, that must've been a very exciting room to walk into mm. as producers in and see what was there. Can I ask, were there any animal combinations that didn't make it into the movie? Did you see any early drawings of animals? You're like, that's, that's just not going to happen. I actually, to be honest, I remember, I'm sure there were other iterations of it, Alex. I'm sure there were lots of other stuff, but, but what Andrew's <laughs> saying is in a way for all of us working on this film, like how rational are you when you approach something like this? And mm. the answer is it comes from a place of dreaming and possibility and passion, not rationality. Shona and James kind of together built the world and just it was sort of hugely ambitious. The kind of scale of it was kind of mind blowing, but actually it was the thing, that work was the thing that kind of gave us wings, it powered us on because it was so exciting and it was such a kind of unique and compelling vision of a world that it informed so much of what became possible, if you like, because once financiers begin to see that stuff, they're going, wow, that's amazing. And can you really pull it off? Is it feasible? Then when Holly Waddington, our amazing costume designer, got involved and she saw what James and Shona were doing, that completely inspired her. But also for Jerskin Fendricks, our composer, who wrote all of the music for the film before we shot a frame of the film, uh, was really inspired by James and Shona's lookbook as he imagined what the, the score for the film might be because it was, we hadn't shot anything at that point. And the cast talk about how useful that stuff was as well. So it was sort of, there was an awful lot of dreaming and excitement at an early stage, um, which actually weirdly, bizarrely came to fruition, which uh, like we were all in some ways terrified because for us at Element, you know, this was the, the biggest film uh, we've ever been involved in. Uh, maybe the biggest film, I don't know if it is the biggest film that Film 4 we've ever been involved in. It's, it's certainly one of the higher budget films that Searchlight have done. But for every single head of department, you know, all of that, that amazing team of people, it was like we were all stretched. We were all in the unknown. We'd never done it before. There was no one who was like, oh, let me tell you how we do this. We, it's, you know, there, everyone was like, holy shit, how do we figure this out? <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to talk about actually realising some of these sets that you've been talking about on these sound stages. Uh, just before we get there, though, obviously you you have built this wonderful world that you need to then populate with actors to take on these roles. From the very get-go, Emma was keen on playing Bella. Um, tell me a little bit uh, about the casting of uh, Mark Ruffalo in a, a role like no other we've ever really seen him perform on screen and um, where that thought came from and, and what his reaction was to either having a meeting or reading that script. So Dixie Chassis, our 
brilliant casting director who also cast The Favourite. The cast kind of emerges from, I think, Jorgos's curiosity about actors. I mean, he watches a lot, he sees a lot, he has a list of people that he's interested in and wants to work with. And I think as he approaches every part, it's kind of digging into the memory banks and thinking about who might be interesting and unexpected. What we don't do is the kind of traditional thing of like lists of names and kind of work down through the names. There tends to be one name and we pursue that name. And if it doesn't work out with well, them, we think again. Yorgos just a massive fan of Mark Ruffalo's. Um, and in some ways, obviously, it's an unusual choice to play that part, but he's an incredible actor, you know, and, and I think he could see, Yorgos could see what sort of was possible for Mark. And I think Mark himself, like, you know, I think he's sort of surprised by himself by what he's done in the film. I mean, I, you know, he's very funny talking about it, but I think playing that part has opened up a whole range of possibilities for him in terms of, you know, what he can think about himself doing as an actor, which is amazing and, you know, re really exciting. And obviously Willem is an icon, incredible, incredible actor. And that was a very easy kind of conversation and thing to, thing to arrive at. But then if you think about somebody like Rami, I mean, Rami, how do you decide to offer that part to Rami Youssef, who is um, Egyptian-American stand-up comedian who makes an incredible show about being a young Muslim man living in America, but to actually to see the possibility of someone like that playing that part of a young kind of sort of naive British doctor, you know, kind of wide-eyed bushy-tailed British doctor. And he's so good, Rami. He's so fantastic in that part. But so there's a kind of a genius in how Yorgos kind of curates the different inputs in the film. And again, Jerskin Fendricks, who's our composer, is another example of that. You know, Jerskin, I guess, comes from kind of outsider music. You know, I don't know how Yorgos actually came across him, but I think just going down a rabbit hole on Spotify, hearing Jerskin's music and going, I think maybe this guy could compose music. And it's the first time that Yorgos has ever had a composer on a film. And I'm right in thinking Jerskin actually had a small cameo in the movie during that incredible dance sequence in Lisbon. He's playing some crazy, fantastical instrument. That's Jerskin. That doesn't work. It's a complete made up instrument. It doesn't no, work. It just looks very impressive. So, yeah. <laughs> Pulling back the curtain. Thank you. I enjoy I enjoy that. So let's talk, seeing as we're in Lisbon from our last dancer um, at the dance sequence, let's talk about that Lisbon set because it's a phenomenal set as a viewer and by all accounts a phenomenal set in person. I'm assuming both of you had the chance yeah. to walk around it built on, I believe, one of the largest, if not the largest soundstage on mainland Correct. Europe. Talk us through that set. It's built in the Corda Studios, which is the largest soundstage in continental Europe. I remember first time stepping on into that studio, I was just blown away by the scale of it. I mean, it's a city block and it's like three-story buildings, properly built. So when you walk into the hotel and you open the door, there's a room in there and, you know, you, the stair, you go up and down over three, three floors. Yorgos was very keen that we would have a set extensive enough that Bella could get lost in it and wander around, and, and that's her journey of discovery. And actually, there's a lot of the set we never saw in the end, but there's lots of little nooks and crannies and alleyways um, that, that are all connected. Really an incredible feat of our production team and the construction team to pull that one off. It truly is. It is an incredible set. And the, the fact that the book is very much set in the real world in Victorian 
Glasgow, I mean, here we have something that is much more fantastical. So I imagine watching your production designers almost to a certain extent have a blank canvas to just run wild with must have been an exciting journey for you as producers and for them as designers. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, Alistair Gray, you know, was an artist as well as an incredible writer. And, you know, there were sort of elements of of his work as an artist that kind of inspired. But then also I think Yorgos was referencing kind of, you know, in the loosest possible way, Fellini movies, you know, the sort of the mixture of the fantastical uh, and and the baroque and the kind of grotesque that that you 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 see in some of those kinds of films and also it's obviously a Lisbon that never existed with sort of strange things flying across roofs and all that kind of stuff but it's it's like it's it's also fascinating because if you talk to any of the actors it's so helpful for them to kind of walk onto a composite set like that in other words a set where you can you know you can walk into the oyster bar and there is a bar there that serves champagne and it's there and then you can walk into another you know, dive bar, you know, you can go down steps and into that dive bar and the hotel and you can go up to the bedroom of the hotel and look out the window. And so I think there's a whole thing of the kind of make believe that was super helpful for them. And despite this, this incredible scale, when it came to actually filming scenes, some of which are, are quite intimate, quite small moments, Yorgos does keep a very small crew with him uh, when he's actually shooting the moments on these vast sound stages. Is, is that right? Yeah, that's very much. I mean, you know, Yorgos talks a lot about how he started out filmmaking in Greece, you know, shooting films with a small group of friends. And just by dint of the lack of resources, there was just a tiny troop uh, making those films. And that's a kind of a, a ethos and a culture he likes to try and preserve on his sets. All those sets were pre-lit, for example, so we could minimize the amount of people that needed to be in the room when, when the camera was turning over. So for a lot of those scenes, it was really just Yorgos, the cast, and Robbie, and sound. That was it, Robbie, the, the, the DOP. And we, we worked very hard to try and minimize interruption and keep everyone else at bay. So it's, it's just kind of, you know, allow them to create that little bubble. There's also, you know, it's sort of forgotten, uh, you know, we shot this film in the height of COVID and, and so everything you see on screen, just left and right, there are people standing around in masks. So we had to be very careful about that stuff too, you know, because all the cast are obviously uh, working without protection. So there was an awful lot of, you know, very detailed testing and, you know, rigorous uh, protocols applied. You've got this, um, this script from uh, Tony McNamara, who you first worked with on The Favourites. Just to take you... Um, a little further back before Poor Things and, and your discovery of Tony McNamara, that was that was very much where you were looking. You were actively searching for a writer to work with on The Favourite. And that's how you discovered Tony. How did you actually discover him? I mean, almost literally. God, it's a while ago now, but I think it was kind of old school. Jorgos loved working with Deborah, who, who originated the script, and wanted to bring someone else in to kind of, I suppose, bring a bit more of his... Uh, sensibility to it and it was old school in the sense that we just read a load of scripts and in fact the script that we read that um kind of really convinced us about the rightness of tony mack for this for the favorite at least it uh, was a, an original film script he'd written for what for the the great what became the tv series the great but it was a it was a kind of biopic a very odd funny irreverent um, biopic of catherine the great and so we loved that and then asked him to write the favorite. And then, you know, he obviously went on and made a highly successful and super entertaining TV show based on 
the Catherine the Great idea. But uh, but that you know that was it. And he's a he's a really warm Aussie. You know he's he's a great person to have around. And he's just he's incredibly funny, incredibly clever, and there's such humanity in his writing. We really want to continue working with Tony as 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 yours. But no, he's he's fab. And the cast, um, every uh, single one of the cast that I've watched talk about uh, this script have nothing but praise for Tony McNamara's words and how much they enjoyed performing them in the film. For you, having read the script and then being on set and then seeing Emma bring this script to life and inhabit this character of Bella, which she has called the favourite character she has ever ever played by some margin. Tell me what it was like when you first saw her, not knowing exactly what she was going to be doing with this, when you first saw her inhabit this role. There was a thing that we did where we we said we were gonna shoot a kind of a, a test day on all the set on the set, the, the London set. It was just to literally test it out. And this was after kind of a there's a period of rehearsal that Yorgos goes through which I is really helpful I think to the cast and it, it's kind of over two three weeks before so all the cast assemble before we shoot and they get involved in this rehearsal process but it's a very unusual rehearsal process and there's a lot of games a lot of fun a lot of rolling around the floor role playing uh, it's not the kind of traditional you know rehearsal period where people read the script to each other and scratch their heads and talk about motivation and all this kind of stuff it's really about play right. and disinhibiting and kind of trust and feeling you know that you're in this kind of band of players and that and and sort of making a fool out of yourself all of those actors kind of are you know highly trained incredible people so there was something kind of very refreshing to them of being in this space where you're just kind of playing and building this very intimate set of relationships with the rest of the cast. But still there's kind of trepidation when you move onto the floor and costumes go on and you kind of actually have to execute on that. Because the rehearsals don't really deal with the specifics of how you play a scene. It's much more about getting into a headspace so that when you're in that headspace, you know what the right impulses are. You kind of feel them instinctively. It's all at that level rather than, you know, something more technical. It's completely creative and free in that sense. But there was, you know, a lot of anxiety from everyone about like, well, ha what, what happens when we go on the floor and what does it look like? And the costumes are on, everything's on, we're there, we're there. So we said, well, we'll shoot this kind of full stay. We don't expect anything to come of it. And that meant, I think, that for Emma and Willem and whoever was around, you know, that early days, that actually the stakes were a bit lower. But of course, that meant it was fantastic and fabulous and wonderful because the kind of expectations were more moderated. And we used, I, I think, pretty much everything we shot that day. But it was a great start into it. But then seeing the kind of physicality that she sort of brought to us, uh, extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, you know. And I think herself and Yorgos had sort of broken down Bella's evolution into kind of five stages. And so that that meant when you were going from, you know, the very unformed baby brain Bella, that's one kind of set of physicality and behavior. And then obviously the fully self-actualized Dr. Bella at the end, there's a whole other kind of a much more, I suppose, much closer to a woman of that age in terms of, you know, physicality and all that. Go home, Duncan. Our time has ended. I look at you and feel nothing but the lingering question of how did I ever want you? Oh. So they had built this structure together, uh, which I think was super helpful to her. But it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary performance. It's incredibly brave. She takes massive swings, Emma. It, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's very hard to kind of understand 
uh, how someone like that does that. <laughs> and all you can do is sort of watch it in awe. And then when you actually see the coherence of it, when it's all put together, when you see actually how instinctively satisfying it is and how truthful it feels you know this this crazy creation of a character this crazy kind of weird frankenstein monster sort of thing it's super impressive you really expect me to go upstairs with the man even if i find him distasteful and therefore i'm sad when i let him furious jump me that is the way it is my darling <laughs> Uh, I think Emma Stone has spoken about the fact that she loved this character so much she found it very difficult to uh, to turn Bella off, yeah. to let go. Yeah. We were at a Q&A last night here in, in uh, West Hollywood and she was making that exact point that she, very hard to let her go and, and, and uh, that Bella had, you know, profoundly impacted her in a positive way. The film is is finished. Just talk me through getting the, the, the theatrical cut that uh, is just about to uh, be released here in the UK. We hear a lot about uh, films going through a, a, a test screening uh, process, test audiences, scorecards and getting feedback on the film. And, and sometimes the film is influenced by those scores and comments and sometimes it's not. Was that a process that you used with Poor Things? Um, so yes and no. I mean, Searchlight and Film 4 both um, hosted sort of friends and family screenings. It's not a formal thing. I mean, there, there's some sort of polling, but it's not a, it's not a, you know, blind testing, you know, with an outside firm. And whilst the feedback is useful, it's, it's just general feedback that's kind of feeds into the conversation that's going on around the cut. And I, I think to be fair to Yorgos, he is collaborative and he's interested in what people have to say, but ultimately you know, like all great directors, he decides when he's, you know, when he's happy with what he has. And one of the great things about working with Searchlight is they understand his process and how he likes to work and they sort of bend to that. So they don't insist on having test screenings uh, that are going to feed into the cut. I mean, they, they do do test screenings that inform the marketing um, campaign. And what was great about them is they went through the roof. I mean, they were really positive, um, you know, so they screened in Texas and places where you wouldn't necessarily expect Yorgos to be a, a big thing, but, um, but the, the responses were very, very strong and very positive and encouraging. And I think that can be helpful just in terms of tweaking the, the approach to marketing and, and what areas to, to kind of foreground and highlight. When you try and sum up uh, this movie, it's about a woman who dies and then has a baby's brain put in her head and goes on a tour of Europe to try and find out what the world is and evolve into a human. It's like, uh-huh. And you want us to market that. Okay. Well, <laughs> where, where, where do you begin? So it is with sort of feedback and, and it must be nice for you as producers to receive that feedback and know that a movie that is quite out there is landing with audiences. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, it, to be fair to Yorgos, he's a rigorous filmmaker, but he's also very interested in the marketing of his films and has a very big say about them and input into them. So it's not like the marketing campaign is designed on the back of test screenings, but it's but no. but they're literally just there to test what we're what we already have and had to tweak if if necessary. The first image of the film is Yorgos's image. He he works with um, a brilliant designer in in Athens, and they're very old friends, and they um, uh, you know they they work together on on all of Yorgos's projects. But then the Searchlight team then kick in and work very closely with them and come up with the various uh, iterations of, of the marketing campaign. Look, it's kind of, you know, it's always the case that when you're watching a film 10, 12, 15 times and there's lots of voices in the room, it, you, you can lose perspective. So it's really exciting 
slightly terrifying, but just exhilarating ultimately when you do get that initial feedback and, and you kind of go, okay, so we're, we're, we're not all drinking the Kool-Aid here. It actually, you know, it does work uh, and it does speak to people. So, so yeah, that's, that's uh, always nice. So talk me through the, uh, the very first time you sat in a room with a film that you are passionate about that is finished and you're watching it with an audience, not of friends and family, but people generally seeing a movie for the first time. They've got no skin in the game, but obviously you guys do. What was that experience like? Where was it? Where did you first watch it with an audience? And where's your head and indeed your heart at in that moment? I mean, the first uh, kind of public screening of the film was at the Venice Film Festival. Um in uh, early September. And the film, we had shot it two years before. There's an awful lot of post-production visual effects. It took a long time to finish the film. And you do kind of lose perspective, but also the film is a big swing. So you don't know how it's going to land. You honestly don't, you know? And so the first time that an audience sees it is incredibly nerve-wracking. Um, and we've had experiences where that hasn't gone down well and it's sort of devastating um, and we've uh, mm. ha happily had occasions where it has landed and and in this case it really did land with the audience in Venice and it was a wonderful wonderful screening the thing that was also kind of I suppose that made us maybe a little bit more anxious as well about how it would land was the fact that we were in the middle of the SAG strikes. And part of the thing of being in a festival like Venice is that you have the red carpet and you have, you know, our amazing cast and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they were absent and particularly Emma, you know, because she's so central to the film, both as a performer, but also as a producer, as part of the team of people who made the film and not having her there, we felt like was you know, we were very anxious about her absence in that sense so that she could speak to the film and talk about it and talk about it from her perspective. But actually, it really did land very well. And it was a, a great opportunity, I think, for, you know, all our heads of department, you know, to kind of to shine actually in the absence of cast because they were they were there and, and there, there was more attention paid to them than often is the case. You know, a lot of a lot of uh, the, those contributions, um, you know, are, are left behind when there's a glamorous red carpet, if that makes sense. So then we went immediately to Telluride. So we went from kind of, you know, Venice and old Europe, if you like, straight into Colorado, the middle of the Colorado mountains to Telluride to play for an entirely different audience. Um, and again, that's something that you go, well, OK, it worked in Venice, but let's see how it works here in, in the middle of America, you know, and it played through the roof there. So I think, you know, coming out of that, you kind of go, OK, and the reviews were very good. And so that sort of makes you think, well, you, you know, you have a chance, like there is something here that people are responding to and people are enjoying, but it's incredibly nerve wracking, certainly for me at least, but I think for everyone, it's like incre incredibly stressful, particularly something that you know, is an expensive film. So many people kind of were kind of stretched in the making of it. It feels like there's a lot at stake. You know, it's not that I feel elated after those sort of things. It's not like I come out punching the air. I'm just mainly relieved. It's more like, you know, okay, <laughs> God, thank God we got away with it. It's not like you kind of, you know, you're sort of, but that's me. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm sure other people have much more normal reaction. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine some people do punch the air and not just go, we got yeah, away yeah. with it. That's a really interesting <laughs> reaction. Just to follow that uh, that through line of, of thought, though, it worked in Venice and then it worked in Telluride and these are, these are film festivals. As we sit here recording, the film is imminently about to hit cinemas across the UK. 
does that come with its own set of nerves or, 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 or at least are we going to get away with it? It does. I mean, you know, there's high expectations for the film in the UK and Ireland. I mean, um, the favorite was really successful in the UK and Ireland. It grossed 17 million pounds when it was released. Um, and so that's a very high bar to, um, you know, to try and aim for, uh, but you know, Searchlight are doing an amazing job. We have, um, two, um, part house cinemas in Ireland. And I was just talking to the programmer of our, of the lighthouse cinema in Dublin earlier today. And he was just commenting how, you know, the marketing is all over the city. It's just everywhere you turn, it's on buses, it's, it's everywhere. There's, um, the cinema itself is plastered in, in Bella Baxter images and the pre-sales are very strong. So, um, and we're, we're also fortunate to have a 35 mil print, um, in our venue and you know, that all of those 35 mil screenings are selling out, which is brilliant and it's great. And, you know, we shot the film on film and be able to show it on film and, and have audiences respond to that is, is really gratifying. You know, it is nerve wracking because, you know, although it's a film directed by a Greek man and they're obviously a mixture of nationalities in the cast, but effectively it's a, fi a film that was built and born out of the UK. You know, it's a British story. The characters are British. They move from London into the world, you know, so it's really important to us that the home crowd respond to it, that kind of that British audiences sort of feel that it's it's something that they they can respond to and embrace please god it'll be okay but it's sort of it's slowly bringing it back home and that's the place where you always wanted to really thrive and succeed so and we're uh, nearing the end of our time together but i do have a, a few big quick fire questions for you before we uh Leave each other's company. I hate quick fire questions. <laughs> they don't have to be too quick fire. <laughs> don't say things like, what was the funniest day on set? Don't ask one of those questions. Okay. <laughs> Andrew, what was the funniest day on <laughs> I'm set? I'm joking. Ask what you like. Yeah. Uh, no, the first question is, and, and you can decide which one of you would like to answer this, but uh, what was your favorite day, the best day in your memory during either the filming or the editing of this film? Was there one day that particularly stands out as a, as a great day in your memory? My best day see, on the film was in Athens in May of, where are we now? May of 23, I guess it must be when I saw the first cut of the film in the cutting room. And it was just a few of us. And like, we just had no idea what to sort of expect. And Emma was in town because she and Yorgos had made this film called Bleat, a short film that they had done together. And they, there was a screening of that. And I just, I mean, I think, and I, probably the best experience I've had at a kind of first cut of a film, you know, of anything really, just seeing that in all its glory and being phenomenally excited by it. And also the kind of, uh, you know, also Emma was so excited by it as well. And so there was a real kind of sense of possibility and, you know, that kind of maybe we'd pull something off. So that 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 that's my best day. Okay, great. Probably my favorite memory of it was just at the end of pre-production in, in Budapest. And, and we had a show and tell for Searchlight and, and Film 4 execs that they came to visit. And uh, James brought us around the London set, which was finished at that stage. Um, and Holly gave us a tour of all the costumes and, you know, examples of, 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 you know, what her team had been working on. And it was a, it was just such an exciting day because particularly for Searchlight and Film 4, who hadn't seen much, it was like, they were just really energized by it and excited by it. And, and you really had a sense of this might actually work. You know, it's like, it just looks amazing. And so, yeah, so that was a, that was an exciting day. Okay. And, uh, conversely, 
Uh, the flip side of that, was there a particularly tough day on set, a day that proved quite challenging as producers from your memory? Ed? The one I remember was, you know, the reanimation sequence? Yes. You know, when, when she's brought back to life and, you know, all the kind of bits and bobs that need to happen there. The total, total car crash. It was a disaster. I mean, we sort of went on to try and to just check that all the little bits of things were working the night before. Nothing was working. And we, I think we pushed it already in order to give ourselves more time to be ready for it. And it, it was extraordinarily grim. At around eight o'clock the night before, we were due to shoot when none of the reanimation stuff was working and, you know, all the, you know, kind of bells and whistles and electricity generator things and all that kind of stuff. It was really grim. But then we figured it out overnight and it was fine the next day. It was grand, and which is what always happens. So I think one of the challenges, uh, I mentioned earlier, Kasia Malipan was our co-producer and, and he managed the physical production of the film for us and did an incredible job. But just one of the challenges on the film at this scale was just the amount of people involved and just trying to keep track of where everything is at any point in time. And um, it was quite close to the point that we, we really needed to lock our budgets, which uh, was quite close to shooting the film. And it became apparent the information that was flowing back up to us that we had a massive problem uh, in our lighting uh, department. And, you know, the, the sets are so big, the scale of them is so large. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we, there was, they were all pre-lit. So we, we had a lot of lights up on rigging for an extensive period of time. I remember we went to a meeting with our um, Hungarian co-producers and went to see the lighting company. And I was slightly shocked to discover we had every light in Hungary and half the lights in Germany up on, on, on our rigging. And it was just like, okay, fuck, how do we, uh, how do we row this back a little bit? It was too late, obviously. And so, and it was necessary, but we, we figured that ultimately, but at the particular point in time, it was quite a stressful financial problem. But uh, yeah, we, we got through that. I have that almost cartoon image of when you turn the lights on, every city nearby goes completely yeah. dark. <laughs> Penultimate question. And this can be specific to this film or perhaps in general from your experience between both of you, extensive experience of producing films. What would you say the toughest job of a producer is? I think the toughest part is actually having to say no to a director because we've exhausted every other possibility. I mean, I think we would sort of pride ourselves of that, you know, our job is to protect and support and sort of amplify what a director is trying to do. And, and so finding yourself in a situation where we actually have to sit down and say, look, really sorry, but we can't do it is that's really tough. Um, and we, we, you know, it, it happened to us on, on another Yorgos film and it was not an easy conversation, um, but it was, yeah. A necessary one, unfortunately. So if you do win, it's a possible future. If you do win on the night, who is the one person that you have to thank on that stage who may or may not have been involved in the film's production, but without whom you would not be up there? I think there's only one answer to that, Ed. Yeah. I think we have to thank uh, our respective wives, Kiva and Aoife, who've uh, yeah. put up with endless holidays, been interrupted by drama and late night calls. So I think without them, we, we would not be here. We would not be standing on that stage if we we're so lucky to be on that stage. Uh, fantastic stuff. Um, Ed, Andrew, thank you so much uh, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure going on this journey through Poor Things with you. And, and once again, congratulations. Thank you so much, Alex. Bye-bye. Thanks a million. Thank you so much. My thanks to Ed Guiney and Andrew Lowe, and of course, to you for listening. Follow the podcast to explore the rest of the nominees and much more in the months to come. 
Thanks too to the producers of this series, Matt Hill and Ollie Peart at Rethink Audio with sound design by Peregrine Pez Andrews. I'm Alex Zane. This was a BAFTA production. I'll see you again as the countdown to the EE BAFTA Film Awards 2024 continues. Continues.